Hello, Kingsters, and welcome back to another amazing episode of the Kinky as Fuck podcast with me, your host, the Reverend. I am so excited for this week's show. We have the one and only Ariel Anderson in the studio with us. I am so excited. Uh, she is a classic bondage model. She's done a lot of work with Restrained Elegance. She is everywhere. And recently, she just became an author. That's right. Next month, sometime in August, she will be releasing her own memoirs called Playing to Lose, How a Jehovah's Witness Became a BDSM Model. Very exciting. I get to speak with her about all of that coming up next. But first, I have to say thank you to all of my amazing sponsors. Starting with FetishForLife.com. Show your love for everything kinky and fetish as fuck with t-shirts, play bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. All of that by fetish artists, the artist who knows what fetish tastes like. And also we have SanctuaryLAX.com. I swear they are open. They are doing so well in their new location. I still haven't been. It's such a sin that the Reverend has not been to the new Sanctuary location. But I am actually here in Utah. I'm going to have to make an excuse to go on down there and just party it up with all of my Sanctuary family. So go to SanctuaryLAX.com and check out their schedule. They've got classes. They've got professional dom subs and switches. They've got parties. They've got you name it. So go check out SanctuaryLAX.com. And last but not least, I got to say thank you to Spotify. And other than that, Kingsters, let's start the show. Time for the kinkiest fuck podcast with your host, the Reverend. Be very, very quiet. We're looking for kinkster. This week on the podcast, we have none other than Ariel Anderson. Oh, 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 my baby's naked. Yay! Are you ready yet? Nope. Are you ready yet? No. Are you ready yet? No. Okay. A big shout out to all of our sponsors that make this podcast possible. The Kinkiest Fuck Podcast. Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash kinkyafpodcast. Yay! Now fuck. All right, Kinksters. Joining me in the studio today is the one and only Ariel Anderson, a absolute legend in her field. How are you? Good heavens, thank you. What a lovely introduction. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's very exciting. Oh, oh it's our pleasure. We, um, well, I say we, but really I have been a pretty much a super fan for a, a very long time. And when I asked you to be on the show and you said yes, I'm like, my life is pretty cool. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. It's really nice. I like doing podcasts and I'm quite new to appearing on them and i have huge respect for anyone who manages to do this on a regular basis because it feels like a lot of work so thank you i'll try to be interesting <laughs> <laughs> well all right ariel anderson is known for uh, just classic bondage shoots uh has been working with restrained elegance for a very long time but a lot of people on twitter because I, I reach out to the twitterverse all the time for questions they want to know, how did you get your start? When did you realize you wanted to become a bondage model? Well, interestingly, 
because I grew up pre-internet, like everyone over what 40, I suppose, um, I didn't know there was such a thing as being a bondage model. I didn't know there was such a thing as bondage. Um, I assumed, like I guess a lot of us, that I was completely alone in the world with my strange interests. So when I was 25, um, I discovered internet modelling, which was just beginning to boom. So I put a little portfolio up online to be a fashion and artistic nude model. And I was really excited about that. I'd been to drama school, so working nude was no issue at all, because at drama school, we all had to get naked all the time. So that felt like a very normal thing. Um, and then my second day, my second ever shoot, which was an art nude shoot, at the end of it, my photographer said, would I like to come to a exhibition with him? There was an art exhibition he was going to that evening. Um, and I said, yes. And I went along and it was a bondage exhibition, which he hadn't known and I certainly hadn't known. And I walked into this beautiful gallery in central London and was suddenly confronted by images of BDSM, which I hadn't known was a thing. So it was just like seeing the inside of my brain on the walls. <laughs> nice <laughs> way. Um, and so I walked around and met all these artists and photographers who did bondage. And at the end of the night, I'd got bookings as a bondage model. So it literally happened in my first week as a professional model. <laughs> so incredible. extraordinary, like what a stroke of luck. Um, and of course, then I discovered that even in 2003, which is when I started, um, there was a really vibrant community and industry of bondage producers and models that I slotted straight into. And it was it was like finding a new universe and like coming home all in one go. It was it was amazing. That's always uh, kind of the feeling when when you just find your people and everything clicks it's uh it's it's really mind-blowing isn't it yes yes it is and you know i was living in london and if you're in any big city of course there's there's kink everywhere as soon as you know as you you can't help but stumble across it you just need the way in and once you know the way in it's like there's a whole alternative version of your city with kinky people and it's yeah, it's amazing. What a privilege. <laughs> Living in bigger cities does very much help. So, yes, that, that is really funny, though, that your second um, your second time was when you were introduced to it all. That's that's a very big stroke of luck. <laughs> I know. And I'm sure it would have happened within the first few months because I'm sure someone would have contacted me from a bondage site I guess but yeah as it was I really didn't have to wait very long and it was such a relief to discover not only that there were kinky people but there were kinky people making art about it because I think that sort of lent it a legitimacy to me that because I'd had such a religious guilty background I think maybe if I just found the BDSM clubbing scene for example I'd have been a bit nervous and I'd have thought oh well I don't want to go along and sort of you know have sex in public or anything terribly shocking like that but the fact I could go and make art of BDSM I suppose right. a little bit of a gentle way in um so I could kind of legitimize it to myself while I got used to the idea of being more honest with myself and the world about what I was into. 
Right, exactly. That you know that resonates with me quite a bit because I found the scene as soon as I turned 21, oh. and it was a, an amazing feeling finding um, the old club that I used to go to, the community, uh, FetLife, and then all of a sudden um, realizing that you know people wanted me to be on stage, being an MC, things like that. I'm like, uh-huh. well, of course, if I if I if I'm a professional at this, right? If I if I uh, hold the microphone, it's it's not deviant. It's just uh, it's just work, right? Yeah, and it is a little bit. I guess it's a little bit of a sort of um, safety blanket when you're new, because it certainly is Absolutely. less frightening than just going and playing in public. I, I mean, it is less frightening having a you know having a camera in front of you, or in your case, having a microphone in your hand sort of just gives you a little bit of distance while you get used to the new world that you're inhabiting, I suppose. Exactly. Jeez. All right. So you've, you found your community in your, in your second shoot and you, you tell us what your first shoot was like. Was it, was it nerve wracking? Was it fun? Was it a little bit of everything? (laughs) Tell us about that. This is in my book and I I knew I had to tell the story because it's not a good story but I had to tell it because it's honest. So once I'd been to this exhibition and met all these photographers the artist who'd taken me there um, said oh wow I guess if you're going to go and have bondage shoots would you like to kind of try it out just with me first just as a sort of warm-up so I said sure now I realize as a beginner model as a beginner bondage model the last thing you need is to pair yourself with a beginner bondage photographer because that way no one in the room knows what they're doing Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I went along to his apartment and he decided to tie me to a chair with some bandages because that's what he'd got Um, and he tied me to the chair And then he blindfolded me, which we hadn't discussed, but it hadn't occurred to him to suggest it, to communicate Mm -hmm. beforehand. And it hadn't occurred to me to say, please don't blindfold me because I was a complete newbie. Um, And as soon as I was tied up and blindfolded, I thought, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. No, I'm absolutely sure he's going to kill me. Um, (laughs) That's a valid fear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't happen, but it could happen. Um... And, you know, no one knew where I was because I was a new model and it hadn't occurred to me to tell anyone. Um, And so I started to cry and he very kindly unblindfolded me and said he'd get me out. But then he discovered that actually bandage knots are really hard to untie because they start to um, (laughs) they start to just unravel. Mm. So he said, oh, hang on, I'll go and get something. I'll I'll go and get a knife, um, he said. And I thought, a knife? (laughs) He's going to kill me. So he came back into the room with this big kitchen knife um, and cut me out of the bondage. And it was, I I stayed friends with him. It's fine. But it was a terrible first experience for (laughs) all the reasons that now I warn new models about. No one knew where I was. I was working with a beginner and neither of us knew the rules. We didn't talk about what we were going to do first. He blindfolded me without asking. He didn't have safety scissors. It was just... (laughs) (laughs) But it's the only time I have panicked in bondage. And I wonder if, even if it has been your fantasy all your life, like it had been for me, the reality of doing, engaging with your kink for the first time 
even if it has been what you've been fantasizing about for all those years, it can still be overwhelming. And I guess that's what I experienced. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of I, I hear that kind of story from a lot of newbie models, professionals or just lifestyle people of I got excited. And things went way too far, way too quick. And it's either half of the people will either leave and never do it again I just, or yeah. jump or jump in with both feet and go, no, I'm I'm making sure I, I still have a good time with this. Yes, yes. Because all the mistakes that were made on that shoot by me and the photographer, they were all innocent mistakes. No one was trying to do anything wrong. And it just, it encouraged me to be very careful about communication and and basic safety. And it encouraged me to learn quickly about what made a good bondage scene um, because I realized even as the sub or the bottom actually you still have responsibility you both have responsibility when you're doing something professionally together um, so you both <laughs> do need to be educated it's not just the rigger who needs to know what they're doing what oh, I want my money back <laughs> <laughs> no I, I love that you said that because that is a big misconception that either the the dominant or the rigger has all the responsibility and the bottom or the, you know, rope bunny or whatever the title can just lay back and have fun. Yeah. And that's too much responsibility to give to someone, really. It's, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't understand how anyone can be a dom anyway. It seems like a hideous, hideous <laughs> work. Um, huge responsibility. But yeah, at the very minimum as a sub, you have to be communicating honestly. That's absolutely really important um, because because the responsibility is too much otherwise for the dom. Yeah, I mean, dominants are not mind readers. No, that's that's something that we've preached about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really tempting as a sub, especially when you're at a shoot and you're being paid. I know early on in my career, I wasn't great at saying you know, I'm a bit worried about this because if I fall, I think I'm going to break my neck. I I think it and I'd think, oh, well, I don't want them to think I'm a diva. And I, you know, I don't want them to think I'm difficult. I don't want them to think I don't trust them. Um, right. It's it's difficult. Um, it's it's difficult to be assertive. And I'm still trying, you know, 20 years in, I still don't want to hurt people's feelings. But now I think. I've kind of I've got a responsibility not just to myself but to models who come into the industry and so I sort of want to make things better for them and so I I have to I have to be brave and say hang <laughs> I might hang myself in this if we're not careful <laughs> um, so right. I well that's a fantastic point as well I mean when you're new in anything it's it's hard to speak out but you know what if you're not comfortable with something then you you have to say it because no one's going to say it for you. Yes. And there is no objective standard for what makes a good rope bottom or a sub. There, there isn't. There's no such thing as the, there is nothing that you have to do that makes that is obligatory in BDSM. Everyone's got different limits and that's fine. And now there are so many models that I respect who some some of them can do positions I can't do. Um, there are things I can do that they can't. And we are all valid. And that's 
that's I suppose a very important lesson as a model because it's easy to compare yourself and feel inferior but we all have strong points of course right well perfect um another question from the twitterverse is uh you have shot tons of different um either theatrical things or self-bondage pov but what is your favorite what is something that you find that you just love to shoot one thing i really like and it might be because it's still quite novel to me because the 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 industry in the uk is different from the industry in the US, I think. So there really wasn't much opportunity for me until I started traveling to do the kind of the harder side of BDSM. So of course I did lots of work for Restrained Elegance and I still do and it's lovely. Um, but there's a lot of responsibility when you're the model for glamour bondage because you can still move quite a lot. So you have to still move quite a lot. You still have to find a hundred poses per photo set. And that can be hard when your hands are tied. Right. Then when I discovered the really kind of tougher immobilizing side of bondage, I realized, well, this is really relaxing because there's no way you're going to find 100 poses. You can't. Um, you can't do different facial expressions if your head is like wrapped in duct tape. <laughs> and I mean, I wouldn't want to only do that. I like doing a wide variety of stuff, but discovering that quite late in my career, the harder side of BDSM, I really enjoyed it. And I suppose it was a little bit like being a beginner again, because I didn't really know how to cope with that level of bondage. And it was really exciting trying to learn. Well, that's great. Now, you, you've said that um, the UK and the US are, are different industry-wise. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, to begin with, we are small, of course, so we don't have as many producers. It was really eye-opening to me when I started talking to American models and realizing they can just do bondage if they want. They can just travel around if they're prepared to travel within the USA. They can just do bondage and there's no way in this country you could just do bondage like <laughs> even though it's my favorite that and spanking i still to this day have to take work that is neither of those things um in the uk and when i tour in the us i don't have to i can you know for a couple of weeks i can be like an american model and just do the the genres that are my absolute favorite so that's the first thing um, the second thing is that a couple of years ago, I guess maybe five years, maybe seven years now, there was a big effort from our government to shut down online porn in this country. So quite ah. a lot of producers at that point shut down because the threat was so great, they just couldn't see the point anymore. So some of them moved abroad and some of them just stopped. So it has been a rather hostile environment for bondage and BDSM producer and I think um, bondage and spanking work was illegal in the UK at a time when it was already legal to do in the US mm -hmm. so so we've got much less of a history so I remember the first time I started traveling in the US I started meeting producers who'd been doing it for 30 years already and that doesn't exist here it's a much younger industry and there are some wow. people to work with but but working in the USA, I mean, you've got a heritage, you've, you've really got, you've got history in this industry, and, and that is rather remarkable. 
the first time I was on a set where there was a rigger, a separate rigger from the producer, it was in the States. I'd never met that. I felt like I was in Hollywood. <laughs> it was like, wow, there's a crew. And yeah, I like it very much because it feels a little bit more mainstream, I suppose. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you on that. You know, porn here in the United States is a little bit more mainstream. It's still yeah. kind of like that weird... Uh, we're not going to talk about it in public, but, you know, we know it's there. So we're, we're starting to face our own issues with legislation coming up. So yeah. we're hoping to dodge that bullet, but uh, yeah. we'll see. Yeah, I mean, your your tradition of freedom of speech, I hope will stand you in good stead. But I, yes, yeah, I am. I'm watching with interest and hope for you that it doesn't become too hostile. Right. Well, it was really funny. A couple of years back, they um, they passed something called SESTA and FOSTA. And mm -hmm. if I if I read just the the general terms, um, me being a kinky podcaster made me a sex worker, which I laughed at. I'm like, really? Wow. <laughs> wow. I hope you're making a lot of money. Um, you know, I'm making podcast money, which is maybe a cup of coffee a week, but I do this because I love it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that just seems absurd, doesn't it? Because I think if you talked to an actual sex worker, especially a full right. service sex worker, and if you described yourself as a sex worker, I feel like they would just laugh in your face. Absolutely. So far from from the risks and the, the experience of sex work. It, yeah, that just seems mad. Um, but, but I have read up on this and yeah, it's it's very disturbing. And I, I really yeah. hope that you keep your freedom of speech because because I've always really envied your country for that you know it it does feel very free when it comes to sexual expression and I would like it to stay that way because it's so impressive well so would I th I think about half of us would <laughs> still love that the other half I'm not sure <laughs> no no <laughs> All right. So um, we have one more question and then I'd love to talk about your book. The, the last question is, what is some of your favorite memories of being on shoot? Any f funny stories, any memorable thing that you just want to share? Well, I do. I love it that when I first wrote to Restrained Elegance, now my husband, Howell, um, I wrote to him when I had been modelling maybe six months, I think. Um, I wrote to him about working for him and he said no, which was a terrible shock because <laughs> at that point, wow. everyone had been so welcoming in the bondage world and I was terribly surprised. So I wrote back to him and said, look, I'll do it for half the price um, half my normal day rate because I really do think I'd be a good model for you. So he said, oh, OK, all right. Um, but you seem very serious about it. So, OK. So I went along to that shoot with such determination to prove to him I was the best possible model that he could hope for that. I mean, I didn't know how to do that. So the way I did it was by talking very loud and very fast. <laughs> <laughs> which is not something that my husband enjoys and <laughs> when I look back at that shoot of all the things I did to try to charm him and how absolutely wrong I was in in all of my choices on that day I, <laughs> that. 
I like it very much. And I always I have a very um, happy memory of the first time I went and worked with John Woods and Lorelei. So they were the first US bondage producers that I met. And I went to their studio slash house um, in Los Angeles and walked through the door and was just surrounded by kind of the, the history of bondage, you know, the sets, the rooms I could see, I recognised them all from bondage videos and they'd got old Harmony magazines that I started looking through and I'd never seen those. And that was a pretty extraordinary moment for me. But my whole career, which has been just coming up to 20 years now, I mean, it's been such a lovely adventure. And of course, I've had some bad experiences, but broadly speaking, I mean, the whole thing has been a huge pleasure. So it's hard to pick out experiences because it honestly has been such fun. And I still can't believe it's my job. It just, (laughs) (laughs) what a privilege to be tied up for a job. (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic. On on a personal note, if you don't mind, Mm. how how did you go from... um, your first shoot with restrained elegance to now being married <laughs> it happened very slowly that's the answer gotcha. so we became friends uh i started you know, i started having my own ideas for shoots as i got more confident so i'd i'd email howl and i'd say how about doing this can we do this um and so he would book me for longer i had this fantasy about being kept in a cage overnight. So we filmed that. And in the end, we'd spent a lot of time together. So when we both found ourselves single, I suggested maybe playing together because by that point, I'd realised a lot of kinky people, they they have play relationships that aren't necessarily romantic. So I thought, oh yeah, we could probably give that a go. And then we discovered that for us, it was quite difficult to play with someone and for it not to be romantic so I think after about six months of us just playing together and having these very rigid ideas about you know what we called each other and what we did and what we didn't do um, we started dating like normal people I remember we went for a country walk by a river after (laughs) six months of just doing BDSM and it felt like wow we're sort of doing this the wrong way around (laughs) (laughs) we got it backwards but we got it Well, that's lovely to hear. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, it was a very nice story because I I hadn't expected to get into a BDSM relationship because I hadn't known there were kinky people. So I was in a vanilla relationship when I started BDSM modeling and I, I figured, okay, well, I'll just, I will express this interest through my work and nothing else. So having done that for a few years and then finding an actual BDSM relationship, uh, it was really nice to have something that was mine because doing this stuff on camera is lovely, but it's really it's really precious to be able to do it in your personal life as well. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for the, the history and everything else, but let's get into the thing we're really excited to talk about, which is your memoir, Playing to Lose, the memoir of a Jehovah's Witness turned submissive BDSM model. That's me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited about it as well. Uh, it, it 
didn't take very long to write at all because I'm quite obsessive. So once I start, I, I can't really stop. So I wrote it quite fast. And then the process of getting it to publication is incredibly slow and mm. complex. And I never knew. I used to hear writers say, oh, writing it, the book is the easy bit. And mm. I I didn't really believe them. And now, I, yeah, now I'm saying that cliche to other writers, oh, the writing is the easy bit because the rest <laughs> involves a lot of people with lots of money telling you no. That's what it <laughs> That's what it involves. So getting an actual agent and then getting a publishing deal was quite a fight. And it made me realise that being a sex worker of sorts and being, I think, perhaps especially a submissive woman who makes a living from that, I think a lot of people still find that quite a challenging idea. And so I think I've written a feminist book, but when I sent it to people who said they were looking for feminist books, none of them got back to me. <laughs> 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 Which was interesting. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting with, um, you know, I've never published anything. I've had a couple friends that have tried to publish and they just quit and ran away from it. So what version of the book is finally being uh, released? Is it your 1.0 or is it the 9.7 that, you know, several people have nitpicked and edited? I was really scared they'd make me take stuff out. That's what I was frightened of. But as it happens, I've had I've had editors who I've really liked who've been very positive about the subject matter and what they've asked me to do is add stuff so there's a lot that wow. I didn't think people would want to know about which I have now put in at their recommendation uh, there's more of the story of coming out of the Jehovah's Witnesses which I kind of originally skated over because I think I I think I thought I needed the book to be short for people to get through it. And it was really nice to be given confidence by my editor to expand upon it because I just, to begin with, you know how sometimes if you meet a stranger, you try to talk really fast because you don't want to take up too much of their time. I think <laughs> when I first wrote my book, it was a bit of a gallop through the story. So it's been, gotcha. it was very nice to have an editor say, basically slow down and give us more of the story. Um, and also she asked me to please explain some of the BDSM terms better because I had forgotten that people wouldn't really understand. So I had a lot of fun trying to explain, well, what is a pony girl master exactly? <laughs> so now I hope a vanilla person coming to my book, not knowing anything, I hope now it would all be easily comprehensible to them. Well, okay. Uh, so you, uh, you went and got it uh, crowdfunded you ended up getting 700 supporters and 134% of the book has been funded. Like yes. how, how does that feel? <laughs> that, wow. It, I mean, it's a huge relief because I really wasn't sure because you can look at your Twitter followers and you have no idea how many of them would actually put money into supporting your ventures because a lot of people are obviously there just to look at the free pictures of course so right. it's, it's a relief on a personal level but also it made me feel very supported by this community and this industry it was not just people pre-ordering the book but people retweeting and sharing 
my tweets about the book and writing about it themselves it it made me realize how much of a community we are and it made the effort of getting my book published feel like something that we did as a group not not that I did as myself and I found myself and still find myself saying we are 134 percent funded because that's how it feels you know I can see there's 700 of us who did that and it's really a nice feeling uh, and it right. makes me desperately hope that everyone will like the book because now it feels like responsibility <laughs> <laughs> It's also quite scary that there's quite a lot in the book that I've not told anyone because because yeah. some of it's hard to talk about. And I try not to think too much about what it's going to be like having strangers actually read stuff that I would not have told them if I'd met them. Um, <laughs> like, I've just reached the stage of pre-publishing now where a few journalists have review copies and they're reading it now. So there's probably about six people worldwide who are currently reading it. And even that, in the middle of the night, it seems quite horrific. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously a memoir is so personal. You know, if you do it right, you have to tell the truth. And right. you, have to, you have to tell the truth even when it doesn't paint you in the very best light and I, I hope I've done that I've been honest and that's sometimes a bit uncomfortable right um but yeah it it, it certainly means that if I actually imagine real people reading some of what I've written um it's it's quite a challenging thought but <laughs> <laughs> well, you know it, to kind of like lay it all bare and have that kind of vulnerability makes for a good read if if I just picked up, I'm sorry. I really hope so. Thank you. That's a nice thing to say. I hope so. Well, you know, if if you pick up a book and it's all, oh, this is all happiness, rainbows and sunshine. It's like, well, cool. That was a quick read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I read a lot of memoir, and I love it when people sort of admit to less than ideal behavior. Um, so I I thought I will at least try to emulate the writers that I really like. Um, you know, if they can do it. I can at least try. So right. I, I hope as a result, people will relate to it because I hope I'm not the only person who did some of the ridiculous things that I did when I was trying to experiment with BDSM without really acknowledging that that's what I was into. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right. So it's uh, it's pre-funded. There are six people uh, currently reading. When will people actually be able to see it on the shelf or on their Amazon, their Kindle, etc.? So it's it's on Amazon for pre-sale. So you can buy it, you can pre-order it at this point, but it will actually be released to the people who are supporting the book. It will be released in July, I believe, and then it will be on general sale in actual bookstores in August. August the 24th is the publication date. Um, so it's still a while away, which is very annoying because <laughs> now I want to get started on all the stuff surrounding it. Right. Uh, but 
apparently there's still loads to do the the book is pretty much ready but there's there seems to be a whole lot of stuff that i don't understand at all associated with getting it actually printed and traveling across the world and stuff so i still don't understand how it works every email from my editor is a surprise um, <laughs> a, a new difficult thing that has to happen <laughs> Okay, so in uh, in August it'll be available pre or, or I'm sorry um, for general consumption. Uh, is that just in the UK or is that just global? Um, it's global online, so you'll be able to buy a paper copy anywhere in the world via Amazon. I don't know. I don't think it will be in physical bookstores anywhere except the UK at this stage, because I think any foreign rights get negotiated separately. So that might be a little further down the line. So yeah, buying it online will be people's best chance if they're not in the UK, I think. Okay, perfect. So lead us through the book the the memoir is going to go from your early days uh being a jehovah's witness all the way through when was the when was the end cap of this memoir i when i first wrote it i finished the story with a lovely happy ending before covid and then covid happened <laughs> and then COVID happened. Everything changed for everyone. So then I had to write a couple more chapters, which was it was a pleasure to write that because, of course, for a lot of the book, I was having to look back many years. And I've got a really good, vivid memory of childhood and my younger life. But being able to write about stuff that had happened, you know, that year was, I was it was a great pleasure to do and to make the story really up to date so now the point at which it ends is really recent stuff that people will have it's about stuff that people will have recently watched me shoot so that it felt like a really nice place to end it but even so since I finished writing more stuff has happened so now I want to write another <laughs> one <laughs> well I was gonna save this one for the end but that kind of led right into a perfect question from Twitter a memoir is normally kind of something um, someone releases when they retire. Mm -hmm. But Ariel Anderson no. is not going anywhere, right? No, no, not. I mean, if I have the good luck to stay healthy, I never want to retire. I love this job and I love this industry. So, no, I, I guess I wrote. Why did I even write it now? I think it just I couldn't help it. It was a compulsion. I felt like I had to. And I because I'm not intending to stop at any point, I don't have the patience to wait another 30 years to write this. So I had to write it. <laughs> and I'm just going to trust that a lot more will happen and I'll, I'll be able to write another volume of it. Vol volume two, volume three, all of them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because lots of stuff happens all the time. <laughs> Precisely. All right. This is very exciting. Um, your book's coming out, but you're not retiring. We want to make sure we get that out there. Yes, I hadn't thought of people thinking that. But no, you're right. You're right. People might. But no, I, I certainly won't. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I still have a lot of energy for it. <laughs> and lots of fantasies I've not fulfilled yet. So I have to carry on. Would you like to share one of those that we, we haven't seen from you yet? Oh, well, I've got this particular position in my mind um, that so far, because it needs a combination of the right furniture and 
the right rigor. I've not managed to do it yet, but I've got this idea in my head of a strapado tie over a table with some kind of winch. So we could do a really strict strapado, but my body would be on the table. So the flexibility of my arms would be tested because I couldn't bend for forward further to take the pressure off them. And I can see it in my mind. Um, and I really want to do that. Gotcha. And yeah, I thought it would be really great to turn that into a spanking scene. So that's one thing I'd like to do. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that you, you said you've been doing this 20 years and yet you're still thinking up new things to do, things that you want to do. And it's just one of those inspiring things of, you know, when you find your passion, it will never get old. Yeah, it's really lucky if you have one, because I certainly in my life have met people who didn't have that. And I think you're really lucky if you do have that. I mean, I know lots of people do have jobs that they feel ambivalent about. Um, and having stumbled into this career somewhat by accident, I just I feel very grateful that I found something that I I would do, even if it didn't earn me any money. I would do it as a hobby because it's fascinating to me so yeah i do i feel very lucky about it all the time really except when i'm cold then i don't feel lucky <laughs> <laughs> a lot of studios are very cold now that i come to think about it especially i mean i mean what some some big warehouse is is cold no <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> one one of our uh, one of our dungeons out here, uh, Sanctuary LAX, um, oh. the old location because they had just moved, yeah. but the old location was a giant warehouse. And during the, the during the winter, uh, in California is still a nice day apparently in the UK, but <laughs> we're we're all walking around this dungeon freezing, and people are still going well. I'm here to play and they strip oh. down and they're like, okay, let's, let's play before I lose my nerve. Yes. And it's terrible because impact stuff hurts so much more when you're cold and yeah. not as flexible when you're cold either. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's a nightmare for spanking. It's a nightmare for all of it. Um, so I really <laughs> like working in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that sentence before. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so novel to be warm enough because in this country, it's cold a lot of the time, and also our heating systems are not great compared to yours because we don't have such extremes of temperature. So, um, yeah, we are often inadequately heated, and it's terrible. But I still love the job, never. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I've got just a couple more questions here, and then we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Um, first off new models that are joining you know the the workforce the, the the what would you call it the the it's not really a scene it's more what would you call bondage modeling as a group of people gosh these days it's a little bit hard to quantify isn't it because once upon a time we were performers but now even new models often stop producing their own work very quickly. So I suppose creators is the word that we're all moving towards a bit. Okay, um, creators. Yeah, I, because, because really 
these days. I think Little Missy UK is a good example that she started bondage modelling for herself. Her first work was on her own OnlyFans. And that's a very interesting change in the industry. And I, I like it a lot. All right. Well, what would you uh, what would you say to someone looking to getting into being a bondage creator or a fetish creator? What would be your advice? I would say, I suppose I'd say a couple of things. The first thing I'd say is take safety very, very seriously right from the beginning, because if you're going to have bad experiences, they're likely to be clustered at the beginning of your career, because that's when the unfortunate the unfortunate truth is that's when predators who are on the fringes of our industry will try to book you so take checking references extremely seriously don't just check with a random model check with a model whose work you know and respect and maybe check with multiple people before you go and work with a unknown quantity always let people know where you're going and then the second piece of advice is a little bit more it's less it's less vital, but I think for long term satisfaction in your career, it's really important is do the stuff you actually like, because it's very easy to chase the market. And I know when I started um, bondage modeling, a lot of people tried to cast me as the dominant because I'm so tall and I knew I wasn't dominant I, and I knew it would give me no pleasure. And in fact, it would I'd hate it. I'd hate playing a dominant role. And I, I'm really glad that I had the courage to turn down that work because I was poor at the time. It was hard turning work down, but it was the right thing to do because once someone sees you doing a certain genre, that's what people will book you to do more of. Right. So you can control where your career goes a lot more than I realized to begin with, but it does sometimes mean turning down some opportunities and it means sometimes chasing producers who are initially will turn you down, like my husband. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like really prioritizing the work that you love in the end. That will be the thing that gives you a career long term that you enjoy. And I think that's very important. Well, fantastic. Great, great advice. And my last question that I have is what is coming up for Ariel Anderson? Is is there going to be a book tour or are you going to continue touring as just a bondage model or a little bit of both? I'm Yeah, I'm going to try to combine the two. So I'm going to BoundCon in June in Munich and that's before the book comes out. So unfortunately, I won't be able to really do much promotion for the book, although I will try. But yeah, what I'm really hoping to do is to tour as I always have. But my typical tours are maybe 10 or 12 days long. And I'm hoping maybe eight of those days will be modeling and maybe two of those days will be doing book related stuff. That would be my ideal because that way neither feels like a job. Both of them feel like a kind of um, gift and I, gotcha. I love variety so pretending to be an author and wearing author clothes some days <laughs> <laughs> and then pretending to be a model and wearing model clothes I would like that very much that would be that would be perfect <laughs> fantastic all right well Ariel you have been an absolute pleasure to talk to and I have been again a fan for quite a while and I this interview has just kind of sold it for me. Like, yep, I'm a fan for life now. 
thank you very much and thank you for your lovely questions i liked them very much it was it's nice to be able to talk about what the experience of being in this industry for so long has been and it it kind of makes me nostalgic for all the experiences <laughs> i've had so thank you for bringing back some of those memories it's lovely oh well thank you so much for being here um Go ahead and just tell everyone where you can be found on the social universe, and then we'll we'll start heading out. I am on Twitter, where I share far too much on a daily basis, <laughs> at Ariel Anderson. Um, my author website is arielandersonauthor.com. My custom video site is askarielstudio.com, and my book, Playing to Lose can be found on Amazon, on Kindle, and on the Unbound website. I think that's it. I think that's me. <laughs> well, perfect. Thank you so much, Ariel. We're going to go ahead and go back to uh, the studio, and we're going to do the outro. But you have been such a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, and thank you for people who are listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. All right, Kingsters, we're back in the studio. I forgot to mention earlier, I'm in my brand new studio. If it sounds a little different, a little echoey, I haven't moved everything back in yet. Uh, we just moved up to Utah, and we're in a brand new house that we have just bought. What? I feel like such a goddamn adult. Anyway, so... Um, Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you to Ariel Anderson. What a pleasure. It, it, it's one of those things where people say, don't ever meet your heroes or, you know, don't, don't meet someone that you're a fan of. I am so glad that I met Ariel Anderson. Such a bubbly and positive presence, and I hope to have her on the show again soon. All right, but... Uh, I want to say go ahead and uh, pre-order that book. Uh, you can find it almost anywhere. I found it on Barnes Noble. I found it on Amazon. I found it on... Just Google Ariel Anderson Playing to Lose, and you'll find a lot of different places where you can go ahead and order your copy today. All right. I want to say thank you to all of my amazing sponsors, starting with FetishForLife.com, then SanctuaryLAX.com, and of course, Spotify. Oh man, this week was fun. Thank you all for joining in. I'm the Reverend, and I'm out. <laughs> <laughs>